Oh my gosh, dog, be noisy. Hang on. Please hold. <laughs> we don't have the rights to that music. up. <laughs> <laughs> You're doing so good. Go. Today on Danielle's Animal Planet. <laughs> <laughs> no, no joke, though. Hello and welcome to Book Retorts. I'm Sam. I'm Danielle. And this is the podcast about sharing your weird media finds with your friends who don't know what you're talking about. And I don't know what you're talking about, Sam. Danielle, despite I don't know how many episodes I'm hearing now, this will be our 10th Hyperion episode? I know, that's why I can't remember anything that happens from the previous <laughs> ones. They all blend together. It does tend to run together like a wet oil painting that you accidentally move too quickly. <laughs> Well, then, why don't we start then by trying to catch up on what happened last time in Book Retorts when we talked about Hyperion. Hyper- the Fall of Hyperion by Dan Simmons. <laughs> As read by Danielle. This unabridged <laughs> edition will last three weeks. <laughs> okay. So we left. Oh, gosh. Okay. So Hoyt turns into Paul DeRay. You know, yep. Yep. Um, so that's a thing. The other cruciform was just hanging out, I guess. <laughs> one cruciform was hanging out. The other one's like, there's not enough mass to make two people. Let's just make Duray. It's his turn. Can you imagine if this was your first time tuning into a, a Hyperion episode and that's how you open up the segment? <laughs> we say that every time. This book is insane. If this is your first Hyperion episode, brave. Very brave. <laughs> Maybe foolhardy. I would definitely try to go back and catch up because... At least start at the fall of Hyperion, if nothing else. Yeah, the, Danielle does an excellent summary of the entire previous book, so... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's fabulous. <laughs> I somehow managed to, like, make sense of that book way more than I'm making sense of this book. Uh, well, this book, I told you, is a lot more convoluted than the other one. The other one's like, structured into discrete stories. This one is like, okay, now it's time to interweave everything and make it very complicated. <laughs> yeah, it is overly complicated. Okay, so it turns into Paul Duray, and so Hoyt is no more... Or well, is, he's there. Is more. He's just in cruciform form. He's in a Stasis, little yeah. coral cross. I don't know. Uh, what happens after that, Sam? <laughs> Give me a clue. <laughs> so, Doray gets caught up on the uh, Pilgrim stories by listening to the console's com log. And then Braun and Martin set off to go get more food and water from Keep Kronos. Oh, that's right. And then Martin decides that he's going to go and write his cantos in the Dead Poet City. City city of poets, city of dead poets. I don't know this what it's called. Dead city of poets. Like, it's okay, a city yeah, of poets that's dead. <laughs> no one's there. It's abandoned. It's a ghost town. So, dead poets, city of, of comma. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and this is why this is hard to follow. Me, <laughs> and so he decides he's gonna. He pulls out his suitcase and is like, "I'm gonna finish my cantos. I'm feeling inspired. I'm sure the shrike is somewhere nearby." And uh, yeah, pretty much. And Bronze like, "Great, I'm gonna get the actual thing we're supposed to get here, which is food and water, and go on to the keep." Yeah, and so she does that, and Martin dies. Well, sort of. Well, it was that later, later though. though. <laughs> yeah. I'm sure, sure he's removed between. from the equation, at least temporarily. 
And so is uh, Braun, maybe, but that was also at the end. Why can I remember all the things at the end? What happens in between now and the end? Well, we cut to Kassad. You remember Kassad's little adventure with Monita? Yeah. Oh, yeah. So they meet. I thought that was a lot, like two two ones ago. No. Uh, <laughs> so they finally meet up and they're like battling it out. And she does it just, it's her first time meeting him, but it may be his last time meeting her because she's traveling back in time and he's traveling forward in time yep. <laughs> and uh he's mad at her and he's trying to kill her which is dumb because we know he can't possibly kill her because there's like a time thing thing involved thing, in that yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, a, there's, a, there's a logic loop here where if he kills her he won't meet her and so obviously he has to have met her and so yeah it's impossible listen to the last episode don't worry about it <laughs> and they end up having sex because that's just literally how every single occurrence with them ends. And notably, it is not entirely consensual on his part, which is gross. Yeah, but then becomes consensual. Yeah, which is also gross. Which is also gross, yeah. There's a, a whole thing in there. And what else happens, Sam? The end of that scene is the strike shows up and they go with it through a portal. Uh. Oh, yeah, Kassad leaves. Okay, so all practically all of the, the people had something going on today with the strike. So the strike shows up and he's like, I want to battle the strike. And Manita and is like, great. And the strike shows up and then they disappear into a portal. So he may or may not be dying soon. Well, to be clear, that's actually a little bit later. There's two portals involved. This is the first one. Okay, well, sure. I don't remember the second we'll get, portal. Is, he goes to the portal and he goes and sees the future a few days from now where Hyperion's being invaded by the ousters. What? <laughs> Yeah, yeah. He steps out of the portal with Monita, and the, he sees this battle where a bunch of Marines are trying to uh, defend the spaceport against the member of the paratroopers, the dropships. Yeah, I remember that. I just had, I maybe, I, apparently I wasn't paying any attention as to how they got there. You made a very funny to you joke about pooper troopers, I, remember I believe. The, no, I remember, <laughs> I remember my, I remember the joke. <laughs> yeah, of course you do. The poopers, because um, they're paratroopers. But I don't remember the. I didn't remember that it was him being in the future coming out of a portal. Like I yeah, have yeah. no he was like, is this? That. We had this whole conversation where where he asked her, "Is this happening now?" And she's like, "What does now mean?" And he's like, "Well, okay, now." Yeah, as- I, I actually remember you saying that, but I don't think I understood the context. Even when I re-listened <laughs> to it after it was edited. <laughs> All right. Well, just to catch you up then, she's like, this is two days in the future, and this is the invasion of Hyperion that's going to happen, and do you want to join the battle? And it's like, no, I'd rather kill the Shrike. She's like, all right, come on, let's go kill the Shrike then, and they go through the portal. Why do I summarize these things again? Sam just does like 80% of the summarizing. (laughs) Because it's funny is the real reason, and I need to know, like, it's a diagnostic tool for me, Danielle, to know how much you actually gathered and what important details I need to remind you of. (laughs) Apparently nothing. I I don't gather anything. Uh, what All happens right. after that? Do you remember CEO Gladstone's brief tour around all the home worlds of the various pilgrims? Oh, see, I sometimes I think these all happened like two episodes ago, and I think that's what's confusing to me. Well, to, like I said, the, the things get split up a lot. Like that whole thing with Kassad, that was like two different chapters that had a bunch of stuff in between them. So yeah. things get split up a lot. So Mina decides to do like a tour of the world. She's thinking it out and she wanders from place to place. And Templars are important, apparently, not that we know anything about them. Yep. And uh, she probably goes to that bathroom world, but we don't get to see that, unfortunately. She does not go to Marifinitis. Because no. Simmons doesn't have any sense of humor, apparently. And <laughs> he has a pretty good sense of humor, actually. Uh, yeah. That, that, remember, that chapter was just basically for us to 
get an exposition dump of Mina's thoughts on how she has to betray the hegemony and destroy the web to save humanity. Right. She's in a rock and a hard place. She has to destroy humanity either way. Well, she has to destroy the web to save humanity. Like, the humanity as it exists now. As right. Like she it. wants to re. She wants to like renew humanity and make it better than it is by getting them um, unattached from the giant web thing. Well, the Technocore specifically being under the thumb of the AIs. Yeah. That. And then she ends up on the moon, and that's where her and she assistant does not pilot it away, and it's very disappointing. It is. I think it would have been great if Dantem was like, you know what, time to pilot this moon to fight the ousters. I mean, they could have used some help because at some point. Is it during this episode where they find out yep, that they're dying? That's exactly the right moment. <laughs> so at this exact moment on the moon when her assistant comes to her and says, hey, we got a problem. We got a problem, which is that the ousters, uh, unsurprisingly, have uh, they had their plan in play for many, many years. And now that the the humans have decided to uh, separate all of their ships. Well, the they're hegemony, because and... they're all humans. Sure. Okay. The hegemony has decided to like separate all their ships out. Uh, the ousters show up to take control of this place and destroy all the other remaining ships. So, yeah, the, the the hegemony has concentrated all their forces at Hyperion, or at least the bulk of them, and so the ousters are now invading the web after spending decades traveling undetectably at sublight speeds. Yeah, and Technocore was like, oh, I know we gave you 99.9% .9 chance of surviving and, and winning this war, but oops, I guess Hyperion must have gotten in the way. Basically, yeah, Hy the Hyperion <laughs> factor completely throws away all our calculations. We can't predict anything around it. Our bad. Yeah, because they're not able to predict stuff when Hyperion's involved, supposedly. Yeah, because that was the very end, and we skipped a whole bunch. We'll get back to that now. Okay. <laughs> Again, you can tell the story out of order, <laughs> and it still makes sense because everything is happening simultaneously. Yeah, I'm going to tell it out of order. Why don't you tell me what happened to Martin? Okay, so meanwhile, Mar Martin is in the city of Dead Poets, Dead City, the comma, Dead Poets Society, Poets dead City, poets, <laughs> comma City of, and he's writing his cantos, <laughs> and he's almost, and it's like telling the future, the present. It's a metaphor for what's going on in the story. Do you remember what the metaphor was? Like what the important thing that happened of note in the story that he was writing? Wasn't it they like somebody was about to combine forces or something? Yeah. So the story of the Cantos is about the Titans versus the Olympian gods. Mm -hmm. And with the Titans representing humanity and the Olympians representing the Technocore, the AIs, and they come to a ceasefire, an agreement, a partnership, an alliance, facing some unknown third threat that he doesn't figure out what it is because... Because he's about to write it down. And then the strike appears! Yes! Interrupts him! Is that the strike noise? And then the eh, 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 like psycho because he's stabby. Great. Thank you for explaining in detail. You're welcome. And so the strike appears and he's like, time to go martin really because he actually like makes him right martin right so he got to like communicate with martin which is cool yeah. it's yeah. cool and then he takes some and he like stabs him on his arm and then takes him to his fancy stabby tree and puts him on the stabby tree and martin's not really upset about being on the stabby tree so much as that he didn't get to finish his canto so he's like why <laughs> dark then, you world fair, we don't actually witness a shrike putting martin on the stabbing tree it's just heavily implied it's but just, yes yes that we know that's happened. And now I yeah, assume in my in my headcanon, he's just hanging on the stabby tree, upset that he hasn't finished Gandos. 100%. All right, what happens to Braun? Uh, Shrike shows up 
Because that's all that happens in this episode. Nope. I mean, she, she does eventually. at the very end. She has to spend all her time going to the keep. Oh, she hears a noise and she almost becomes a cliche in a horror movie by going to yep. explore the noise. But then she's like, because she's a detective and she's like, oh, no, it shouldn't do that. And then she leaves and then there's like a, a rock slide and gargoyles yeah. almost fall on her. And then uh, she manages to escape. But just before she almost escapes, the Shrike shows up and puts his little... Well, she escapes... She escapes and goes all the way back to the valley Okay. with the supplies, but she finds the Sphinx where everyone was waiting empty. Everyone's gone. Okay, sure. That happened. And then the shark shows up? Yes. Then, then the shark okay. shows so up. So then the shark shows up and he puts his little like finger knife behind her ear where the Shron loop is and is yeah. like, mine now. And that's where it cuts. We don't know what happens. Right where the access port for the Shron loop was. Yeah. Yeah, so he looks like he's going to maybe take it because he wants to meet Keats or... He really wants to meet Keats. Big fanboy. Maybe he'll kill her, but she does have baby Keats inside of her, so that seems less likely. You see, you use baby Keats both to refer to the child she's carrying and the... <laughs> no, that's Keats Jr. Oh, okay. I'm sorry. Wow. Okay, what's the other Keats called then? I forgot. Uh, I didn't, couldn't come up with a better name than Keats Jr., so they've all been either Keats Jr. or baby Keats. <laughs> baby Keats is the literal baby, and Keats Jr. is the any of the ju- the Keats that came after the original Keats. The okay, great. Thank you for clarifying that. I was confused. Sometimes we call him Johnny Keats. And Johnny is what he calls himself, the uh, the cyber that Braun knew and loved. I guess we could call him Severn Keats, too, but that seems like a mouthful. <laughs> Just call him Severn. <laughs> You know what, Danielle? You do pretty well remembering things once you understand when, the order. Like when the, the order that seems to, yeah, the order <laughs> seems to trip you up more than the actual like events that happened in the story. I'm good with prompting. I just don't remember it until somebody prompts me. Also, just to remind everyone, this is not relevant for this part of the uh, story. But Mina did threaten to declare war on the Techno Core because of their chicanery. So. Just want to make sure that I mentioned again, because that might come up later. And as we've talked about at length before, I have no idea what's going to come up later. Most things come back, so I have to mention everything to keep it relevant. That's true. So what happens this week on Hyperion? All right, Danielle. It's the fall of Hyperion, part four. We start with the consul, Father Paul DeRay and Saul, and the unconscious Hetmastine. We didn't mention last time was that they... Oh, yeah, he came back. Yeah, they found Hetmastine and passed out. Basically, he wandered back over, passed out, and they took him back to the Sphinx. So he's back! Hetmastine's back, everybody. Weirdly, the console's still alive. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> so they're all taking shelter in one of the cave tombs, where they had gathered to avoid a storm of the anti-entropic fields. They hear shots, which they assume are from Braun, since she's only one of them who has a slug thrower type weapon. Saul and the console go to check it out. The time tombs are still glowing, so the rave fully on. Yay! DJ Shrike has had a now a residency here at the time tombs. I was giving sound effects while you talked. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. always appreciate having a backing track. I'm going to let that go for a little bit, see how it goes. <laughs> Carry on. When they reach the Sphinx, they find Braun lying there unconscious on the top step. As they look closer, <laughs> nope, this is not appropriate for this particular scene. And boots and pants is always appropriate for every scene that the strike is remotely involved in. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, maybe you should do like a little recording. I can loop that in whenever the strike goes around. Okay. Is Braun alive? Well, she, half head cut off. Danielle, that's a difficult question to answer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> As they look closer, they find a silver cord, a cable connected to the neural shunt socket in her head, you know, behind her ear where the shrine loop is. He's just walking around with like cords. 
the show? Well, it, it it's described pocket. as <laughs> Where a... Where did they come from? Yeah, it was described as a tentacle, since the thing had a fleshy mass to it and felt warm and alive to the touch. Is it connected to the Shrike? And it snakes back into the open door of the Sphinx. They immediately conclude the Shrike, who I guess is an IT professional, so you know, <laughs> got his, his sysadmin certification for running network cable, is the one who hooked her up to this thing. Oh no, poor Brian. <laughs> So the Shrike is, a, is a, at least a double threat. He's not only a DJ, he's also an IT specialist. So they check her comm log and reports that while she's physically alive, she is totally brain dead. Like, no brain activity whatsoever. That's not good. Is she just going to be used as like a little incubator for baby Keats? Danielle, you are so far off, I can't even explain it. <laughs> okay, that's good, I guess. <laughs> They consider unplugging her from the device, but the socket and the flesh around it has seemed to, like, melt and grow up in, like, a red welt over the end of the cable, so it's going to take surgery to remove it at best. Did he take baby Keats? The baby's not mentioned once in this chapter. That seems hard to believe. Like, nobody's concerned that she's pregnant and on the yeah, like, no, that is, life Yeah, no, I thought that was system. wild, too. I wrote that down in my notes, like, this is wild. <laughs> what a man, Jansen <laughs> What really, right? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> like, nobody will care about the pregnant lady. <laughs> <laughs> like, that mentions a lot of things right in these books. I'm not sure a lot of his female protagonists are, are, are some of those things. <laughs> also, um, maybe you can help me, Daniel. I wrote a sentence down in my notes, and I can't make sense of it. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I wrote down Shrike Buffet of Pilgrims, brackets, into time traveling babies. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is Shrike going to eat all the pilgrims and make time-traveling babies? <laughs> I, I, I think there was something here about Bronze Baby and also Rachel. Like, he is, he has this buffet of pilgrims. He can just pick them off one by one. And he's, like, turning them into time-traveling babies, maybe. Like, he's going to turn them all into <laughs> Rachel's or, or whatever. He's going to, like, de-age all of them? Yeah, he's going to do, like, a, a, a daycare or something. I don't know. <laughs> And a bunch of little tots running around. <laughs> I'm tots. <laughs> DJ Shrike is an entrepreneur, okay? He's like us. He's got a million different business plans, all of them terrible. He's a millennial. <laughs> oh, no. DJ Maybe millennial Gen Shrike. Z. We're not sure. Well, he is a DJ. He does have a day job in the tech sector, so it, it fits. And he's got all these side gigs. Yeah, mm. I think you're right, Daniel. Yeah, that feels that feels true. <laughs> It might be why we relate to him so much. <laughs> yeah, it's why he's my favorite character. Thank you for helping me decode my notes, Danielle. I had no idea what that meant when I wrote it. <laughs> when I read it after writing it down however many days ago. Anyway, so the console decides to follow the cable into the Sphinx to see where it goes. And it goes deep and goes around all kinds of stuff. And it feels like warm and pulsy. And it goes into some weird chamber the console did not see before where it seems to flow into the stone of the floor. Like, becomes part of the rock and is impossible to remove. Weird. So she's like plugged into the Sphinx or something beyond the Sphinx. It's hard to tell. The whole time, the console feels as if something is behind him, watching him in the dark. But either way, he quickly leaves. 
We then have a flashback of them finding Hetmastine, where they brought him to the Sphinx, but suddenly the anti-entropic fields had become strong, and there was a storm happening, causing waves of nausea and deja vu. They found that the only place where they were able to tolerate the anti-entropic fields was in the cave tomb. So, like, they try to leave the valley, and they're driven back by the strength of the nausea and the anti-entropic fields, and so eventually they decide to make their way to the other end of the valley, where maybe they're lesser, and they get themselves into the cave tombs. They also struggle to bring Hetmastine, who is barely conscious, and he manages to become conscious just enough to demand they bring the Mobius Cube with them. He's like, don't leave the Mobius Cube, we need that. So the elderly father, Paul DeRay, struggles to load the luggage of Hetmastine with him as they go to the cave tombs, which is so funny. So I thought the other, I thought the Mobius Cube like disappeared or something at one point. Well, no. So when Braun got back to the Sphinx, the Mobius Cube was missing along with everyone else. And so this is what happened to it. They brought oh, it with them to the cave it. tomb. That makes sense. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Sorry, time. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. So the reason the Sphinx was empty when she returned was because Duray and the others and, and Saul had all moved to the... So this is previously on Hyperion. Yeah, I told you, this is a flashback to them fighting Hetmastine. Yeah, I wasn't paying attention to that part. I noticed. <laughs> <laughs> so this time it wasn't like time shifting shenanigans. This was just them, they, they left and she came right. back and they were gone. Got it, got it, got it. Which is a valid question, because sometimes they come back and people are gone. It's because they're out of phase with our time or something. So it's weird. <laughs> I'm surprised he could keep the story straight while he was writing it. I, I'm not sure he did. <laughs> At least if he did, I have no way of proving he didn't, because I don't understand it. That's true. I think he just made it so confusing that it didn't matter if there were irregularities in it. Isn't that basically how like the subprime mortgage crisis happened, where they made these toxic assets that were so complicated nobody could understand them like oh yeah they're definitely worth money people are like yeah we believe you <laughs> this week on sam's comparisons <laughs> hey come on that's a really good analogy for what you just said <laughs> it is good job <laughs> okay we'll move on we lost like 98 percent of the audience with that one but that's okay it's fine everyone we're not going to turn into a finance podcast because we are not qualified <laughs> Boy, are we not going to be turning into a finance podcast <laughs> we are the wrong person <laughs> person singular <laughs> combined together in an amorphous blob <laughs> we're combined less than a full person's worth of knowledge about finance so i think <laughs> it, it, it's fair <laughs> you'd be better off for that podcast than i would be and it would still be the bare minimum <laughs> i don't know if it would be insulted by that or not <laughs> <laughs> more than the average person sam you could do a podcast on finance well no let's, let's definitely not put me in that boat i do not want to be responsible for anyone else's financial problems well then you shouldn't be bringing up subprime mortgages or whatever i'm just saying it was a thing <laughs> that happened i'm not saying i understood it the whole point is nobody understood it <laughs> all right carry on all right well that was a necessary digression but back to hyperion which makes somehow more sense than our financial system once they get to the shelter they demand from Hetmastin to know why is he so intent on the Mobius Cube? Like, why do you need that Mobius box? And Hetmastin, who is quite feverish, says, quote, It's our only ally against the Lord of Pain. They had apparently vied for the honor. The first true voice of the tree to contact the Keat Cybrid was the voice for the Sequoia Semperverans, but Mastin was honored by the Light of Muir, and the Yggdrasil was chosen and offered as atonement for their sins against the Muir. That was just like So I hope that clears words. things up. <laughs> Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> well, I decided here would be the time I'd, I'd look up the word Muir because I'm like, what is that referring to? And I think uh, because the only thing I could find about this was it refers to John Muir, the man who founded right. the state parks, which I think is delightful. <laughs> <laughs> 
I assumed that's where that was going, but I wasn't sure. Yeah, I want to, I want to see, like, is there some, like, reference to something that I don't understand in mythology? But nope, it's just John Muir, the Parks guy, which and is great. And it's spelled the same way, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. That's so cool. There's a little religion dedicated to him. <laughs> <laughs> so Saul and Duray are like, well, that sounds like a weird mashup of Templar and Shrike cult religion stuff. And uh, the consul then asks what happened in the wind wagon, and Mastine says that... He released the elemental from his confinement and bound him with the mind discipline I had learned in the high branches. So again, <laughs> I hope that clears things up. So he learned it at treetops? <laughs> he went Over to the restaurant many a drink? Learn. I don't know. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm glad you remember treetops, the, the, the high up restaurant. Was he friends with John Treetops? <laughs> <laughs> well, John Treetops taught him the mind discipline, Danielle, obviously. That's what I assumed. Yeah, of course. <laughs> So anyway, while he was doing that, the Shrike showed up. But the blood that they found in the wind wagon cabin was not Mastine's. The Shrike had someone else with him, who Mastine calls a celebrant, which, I don't know, seems generous. <laughs> that seems more like it was somebody he'd kidnapped and was going to put on his pokey 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 tree. Yeah, yeah, they call them celebrants. So that's, you know, a, a great euphemism to have. <laughs> I'm going to start murdering people and calling them celebrants, too. Yes, you're going to celebrate atonement with me by being on my tree of thorns. <laughs> so anyway, he had the celebrant with them who had struggled against the strike to escape the atonement spikes, quote unquote, which are great words. <laughs> Love it. spikes. <laughs> the... The language of the Shrike cult is perhaps one of my favorite things in this book, because it's so like, oh, yes, it's the Lord of Pain, the Atonement Spikes. It's great. It's, it's like, it reminds me a lot about how religions try to make things sound great by giving them these weird euphemisms. He's just a fancy serial killer, the Shrike. Yeah, I know. It's great. <laughs> but neither Hetmastine or the Erg, who we call the Elemental, were ready. So he returned the Erg to the box, and the Shrike then touched him on the shoulder, and he awoke later among the time tombs. And then he passes out, before he can tell them what happened afterwards, which was basically, they just found him wandering among the time tombs, probably. So he got kidnapped by the Shrike? Yep. But not murdered by the Shrike? Well, he's still alive, so no, but he might die, so I guess it maybe was a long, like a slow murder. Was he spiked? No. Hmm, interesting. He's just... Left among the time tombs, and then they, he wandered around probably for a few days, or maybe he was taken to the future, and they just found him when he passed out. That seems suspicious. What is the strike up to? <laughs> well, boy, if I only knew that, Danielle, I would have solved this book. So now, Danielle, guess where we are? We're back with Braun. Okay. Saul and the console are debating trying to cut the umbilical off of Braun, because we're back down in the present. That was all a flashback. And they're deciding whether to cut the, the cord, the cable off of Braun, since she's brained it anyway. What can it hurt? Again, I wrote my notes here. No mention today of the baby. So apparently they do not care. Are, is she brain dead because the cord's attached to her, or is she truly brain dead? That is a question they cannot answer, Danielle. So. All they know, she has no brain activity, and she's connected to the umbilical, and she's still alive physically. How do they know she has no brain activity? Did they do a scan? Her comm log. Yeah, her okay. comm log that's like hooked up to her brain is like, nope, nothing happened in there. Got it. But they speculate that the thing, the, the cable, could be tapping into the Keats persona in the Shran loop. So clearly, the Shrek really wants that autograph. He's like, I'm going to get that Keats. I'm going to go meet that boy. He's super excited about the I told you. We said the last episode that the oh, yeah. the whole plot of this book is actually just so Keats and Shrike can meet. Yeah, I mean, Danielle, nothing I've told you so far had just abused me of that same idea. <laughs> They're just fanboying each other. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This is exactly what's happening. So they eventually conclude that they need the console's ship. It has tools they could use to cut her free and medical facilities that could help Hetmastine and Braun if necessary. So the console then goes up into his luggage he left and comes back with a rolled up bundle. Do you know what it is, Danielle? Who wouldn't get it? The console. You gotta pay attention. Um, 
It's the old hockey mat that no, his grandfather okay, yeah, had no. used on, <laughs> on Maui Covenant. I would never have gotten there. <laughs> I know, but fun to watch you think. It's fun to see what you do come up with. You know? I was like, portable piano? <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. See, what a great idea. <laughs> you brought the little keyboard. That, I don't have my shit, but I can do a jam session with you. Maybe that'll bring her back. <laughs> It just, it just, I don't know. He played piano in that first scene, and I thought he was going to be cooler than he is. <laughs> he's a piano player, dude. He's got to be cool. Everyone plays like, piano is super cool. Well, it's so weird and mysterious as an opening, and then he's just kind of lame. <laughs> a little upset about it. It's really funny. <laughs> so the idea is they can use the Hawking mat to travel back to Keats, and or at least maybe find someone who can take them back to Keats and retrieve the console's ship. It was just a magic carpet, right? Yeah, it's a flying carpet. It's not magic. It works on electromagnetism. I meant it as a concept. <laughs> yes. <laughs> just being clear. Because there is like magic in this book apparently. So <laughs> it's about a two-day trip to get there to Keats and then, you know, a really quick trip back on a spaceship because it's a spaceship. So they're planning for him to go two days to get his ship and come back. So they head back to tell Duray the plan and to pack up. Then we cut to Brawn, but this time we're in her head. She's no. thinking about... How could she be thinking? She's brain dead. Danielle. Oh boy, Danielle. <laughs> we're going to get right to this. <laughs> Braun is thinking about the old Peter Pan cartoon, which she watched as a kid and had been a formative experience in her life, apparently. So Disney is also in the future. No surprise there. <laughs> right? I mean, hopefully like, Disney probably morphed into some evil mega corporate, like eviler mega corporation <laughs> like, in the future. <laughs> to be clear, it's probably one of the reasons the hegemony needs to fall. Yeah, it was one of the starting points for that. They're like, all right, well, we never got into Disney, so got to wipe humanity off, start over. It's a lost cause. <laughs> anyway, she, she remembers loving that movie and how she wanted to be the Wendy to Peter, to be the mother of the Lost Boys, to go on adventures with him. She was all about that life. Okay. And now it says Peter had finally come for her. What? She had found, yeah. The so strike? she had found herself. strike, Peter? No, no. <laughs> She has found herself moving through the datum plane into the data sphere as she had been before when she had ridden to the Technocore Matrix with her favorite cyberpuke, BB. And I basically just want to remind you that the word cyberpuke exists, and I love <laughs> Thanks, it. Thanks, I appreciate that. <laughs> she was now rising above the planetary loom of Hyperion, seeing its somewhat primitive data paths, but she ignored the burgeoning data sphere and instead follows an orange umbilical leading her upwards. That's when her Peter takes her by the hand. It's Johnny Keats, the cybrid man. Oh, yay, Johnny Keats, who doesn't understand consent. Woohoo! <laughs> <laughs> well, when it comes to implanting surgical electronic devices in your lovers, yes. <laughs> Other than that, he's gold. Oh, yeah. Perfect. Perfect man. <laughs> Everyone, like, there's a lot of people who have things done to them without consent in this book who are remarkably okay with it. Yeah. Like, the, she, do, she doesn't even seem to care. <laughs> I would be livid. I'd be <laughs> furious. Can't get that sucker off. You're just stuck with it forever. And now the strike's after you because of it. Oh, yeah. Mad. Yeah, no. Absolutely bad. So she sees Johnny and he holds his hand and is like, hey, is this real? And he's like as real as anything is in the data sphere, and they make out a bit. Oh, good. I'm so glad they got reunited. Which convinces her that everything's real. It's like, oh, yeah, okay, this is real. That's how dreams work. Not sure it's quite a dream, but yeah, I would be like, this could just be a dream. Has the strike like plugged her into the data sphere? I mean, essentially, yes. Okay. Nothing's said about that cord yet, but the implication at this point is that when he plugged into her 
brain, her and Johnny are now linked directly into the dead and plane. Okay. So Johnny explains that they're on the edge of the megasphere in Hyperion space. He had been freed from the Shran loop, and they were jacked directly into the datasphere. So, blah, 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 technobabble. Johnny is very glad to be free, because in the Shran loop, it felt like he had been dreaming someone else's dreams. Oh, the same dreams that Bron had been having about the other Keats. So the other people, so while Keats Severin was dreaming about Johnny, Johnny and Bron were dreaming about Keats Severin. So it was a two-way communication kind of thing. Okay. So Johnny Keats and Severin Keats are in the know of each other. Yeah. And Johnny is pretty sure that they reactivated another Keith Cybrid because of those dreams. Like, I'm having these dreams about Mina Glad, so I'm like, oh, they probably activated another Keith Cybrid and we're all psychically linked. What, like, there's he is- just like more Keats? Coming? No, it's just he, he concludes that because he's having these dreams, that there had been another side. Like, he doesn't know that Severin exists. Okay, there's not he's a just, third Keats. No, okay. but he is immediately on board with the idea that these dreams are actually him dreaming the experiences of another cyber. Like, he comes to that conclusion immediately. Well, why not? <laughs> right. I just think it's hilarious. He's like, oh, I had these weird dreams about Mina Gladstone. You know what? It must be another Johnny Keats that was activated as a cyber, and I'm dreaming his life. That makes sense to me. Was that a common thing? Like, is that a thing that's known to potentially happen? I, I have no idea, Danielle. These are the first cybers <laughs> I've ever heard of. And apparently... <laughs> No, I would say no, it's not common. Like, it's never mentioned that there are other cybers who dream each other's dreams I've ever heard of. So he's <laughs> okay. like, I'm I'm just making this up as I go, apparently. He, he just comes to that conclusion immediately. He's like, yeah, that's the most logical explanation. I'm dreaming the life of another cyber that we're somehow psychically linked to. Yeah, that's not a common side effect. That's a weird thing to immediately assume. I know. It's it's just like when, you know, uh, Braun immediately assumed that Hoyt hadn't been in the Sphinx and went to the Jade Tomb or whatever and, like, followed him there. Yes. Well, they had a feeling. She had a feeling, and so does Johnny. Anyway, uh, Johnny is very excited for the chance to see what's going on, to get to the bottom of a lot of mysteries by plumbing the depths of the Technocore. Oh, good. Braun is hesitant, but he convinces her by saying that they could even solve her father's murder, potentially. Does the does the Technocore know that they're there? Do they get, like, an alert or anything? I have no idea, Can you idea, just come Danielle. and go at will and nobody seems to know you're there? Like, Look, Danielle, I, I have no explanation for what the Technocore does know or doesn't know. <laughs> Okay, that's not helpful. Thanks, Sam. I'm not helpful, Danielle. I'm merely telling you what I know, which is not much. (laughs) Braun thinks about how they could die here, but knowing that their new datum plane analogs could, quote, go places no cyber puke cowboy had ever dreamed of, she takes Johnny's hand and they rise together towards Neverland. Aww. Aww. We cut to Kassad, who's coming out of the portal Moneta Moneta had opened, with her following close behind him. He finds himself on a hellish lunar landscape, sort of devoid of air, and the giant thorn tree is there, rising impossibly tall, the trunk at its base maybe 300 meters across. Is Martin on it? Well, we'll get to that. But, <laughs> yay! <laughs> this this surface, this lunar plane, is not actually a moon, it is Hyperion, at some different point in history where it is completely ruined, like the, the dunes have been frozen like glass, and there's no atmosphere, and the sky is black, and the light is not from the sun of Hyperion, but something not of human experience. So he's like, his time, his time pokey tree is like in a different time. His pokey tree is in a different time. Well, everything's in a different time. So the glowing time tombs also look slick and new and shining. So this is clearly the distant future for Kassad when the time tombs were first created. No, I'm wondering if when the Shrike takes people to his pokey tree and puts them on it, is that in a different time or is that in the same time? Does the tree follow him through time? I have no idea, Danielle. It's everywhere and nowhere at once. Oh, it is in gosh. all times and no times. No. <laughs> 
Hard pass. <laughs> We're done. No, no more Aphirion. That's the end. Who knows what happens? <laughs> the tree is just out of phase. It is at whatever time it needs to be. It appears and disappears and moves through time. It is everywhere and nowhere. Whatever. Okay. So the Tree of Thorns is standing there. Kassad zooms in with his magic visor and sees it's covered with thousands, tens of thousands of still living people writhing in agony. And as he zooms in, he sees with his magic suit, one person in particular. It's Martin. He sees Martin. And he's still on it, even though it may be in the future. Or past, well, future past time. It's tree. the future of to Martin and Cassad. It's the past for the Shrike and Monita Moneta. Does that mean that Martin's experienced the that, that entire time on the time tree? I don't know, Danielle, but it, maybe it teleported him there to the future. I don't know how time works. I would hope. <laughs> I don't know how time works. <laughs> I mean, this book has had me question my very understanding of time in the real world, so <laughs> I don't. So he begins to stride towards the tree, determined to get everyone down off the branches, Martin included. But then the Shrike appears between him and the tree, standing on the dunes. Kassad makes a blade out of his suit, like his magic silver skin suit transforms to a blade hand. But Monita calls his name and points the other way, and he looks back and sees a second Shrike emerge from the Jade Tomb. And then another Shrike comes out of the Obelisk Tomb. There's just a whole planet of Shrikes. So as he looks back towards the original Shrike, back towards the tree, there are suddenly hundreds of Shrikes standing between him and the tree. Oh no, this is why we need a uh, an entire field of Keats. Keats versus Shrikes. I know. Well, then a hundred more appear to his left, and the Monita comes up to stand beside him, and their suits flow together. She tells him she loves him, even though she's known him all of, like, a few hours by her <laughs> reckoning. I'll love you in the future. <laughs> I love you now and forever for all of the four minutes I've known you. <laughs> Sounds like we get to know each other very well in the future. <laughs> <laughs> and Kassad tells her that if she loves him, she'll just stay right there. And then he screams, quote, part force cadet graduation shout, part karate cry, and <laughs> runs down the dunes towards where the now thousands of strikes are standing all over the place. Does he really think he's going to get a one leg up? <laughs> he's like, I got this. I totally got this. There are now <laughs> thousands of strikes, which... I could easily take on. But he decides to focus on the one Shrike he thinks was the first one he saw. Cut to the console, getting packed up to go on his little trip. He's going on a trip? To go get his ship. Oh, yeah, that's right. On the, to on help the hockey with the science. Yeah, I got it. Medical science <laughs> ship. It's a ship that has medical facilities, yes. Right, 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 right. I, got, I remember. I remember. It was a long time ago, Sam. It wasn't. <laughs> it felt like a long time ago. <laughs> like 12 things have happened since then. We've re-met re- re- Johnny Keats. Uh, yeah. We met all the shikes. That was like a lot of things to happen that in between meeting medical. <laughs> yeah, but they were very long things. That was like 20 minutes. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, great. The console is still hesitant, but the others convince him to go. They're like, you know, just staying here is basically suicide, and we can't go with you because I'm old and I have a baby, so don't worry about it. He takes some food and water and bronze gone and sets off. He makes a brief detour to the City of Poets, calling out for Martin, but shockingly does not find him. No, I thought Martin was there finishing his cantos. Uh, Well, no, currently he is probably on the Shrike's tree. I was being sarcastic. Okay, well, (laughs) I don't know with you, Danielle. It's hard to tell because of how little this book makes sense to you. And then, because I just love how much useless detail is put into this, he reminds us that the hawking mat was invented by Vladimir Solkov, an EM engineer and web-famous lepidopterist, for his niece, which she did not appreciate. She did not like it and spurned this gift. So, just a brief reminder of where the hockey mat comes from. It's amazing how much we didn't need that detail, most likely. <laughs> I know! I love it so much! <laughs> I mean, maybe. Maybe we needed it, but I highly doubt it. 
I don't think we do, Danielle. And I decided to bring it back because it's so great and so specific and so irrelevant. <laughs> so the rest of this somewhat very long chapter is just the council basically flying back, backtracking along the same route they took to get here, only now in reverse. So I'm just going to briefly touch on a few of the highlights and skip his journey back across the basically the entirety of book one again. Perfect. So some of the highlights. He doesn't find the wind wagon, which presumably automatically trundled off somewhere. And then he falls asleep somewhere over the sea of grass, and he's worried about falling off the mat. <laughs> that would scare me. <laughs> yeah, because it's, you know, it's a little carpet you're sleeping on. So he ties himself to it. And if he fell off, especially over the sea of grass, he would be quickly killed by grass serpents. How do you tie yourself off to a carpet? He like ties himself to a the, the duffel bag he brought, the very heavy duffel bag on the carpet. Well, yeah, but if... And then I mean, ties that. Be, but if he rolled over, it would still just take him and the duffel bag with him. I'm not, I think he like ties it like around the carpet, like the width of it. Yeah, interesting. I don't know. He does it. I don't know. I, can't, I don't have a picture. He has a brief dream about his home on Maui Covenant, standing with his grandmother Siri on the as the modal isles burned and died. She takes his hand, but suddenly it's the Shrike's hand, and he wakes up. Oh no, Siri! Are they going to make it against the Shrike? Why are you asking her? <laughs> I don't know, because it was funny. <laughs> oh, you're making a, a Siri joke. I think. Oh, I okay, see. Yeah. You see what I'm doing there? I mean, it'd be funnier if you had a magic eight ball, but it'll work. <laughs> That's a visual. That doesn't help. That's why it's funny to me. <laughs> the answer is no. Definitely not. The strike is going to win 100%. So he wakes up lost, having drifted off course, and he's worried the mat will now run out of power before he can get to anywhere safe. He flies up very high so he can find the Huli River, which he can follow back to Keats. Every town and village he passes looks abandoned. He's hoping to get his ship back in time while Rachel is still at least a few minutes old and put her into a cryogenic fugue, which is very dangerous for a baby, might kill her, but it also might save her life and prevent her from... I don't know, reverting back to a fetus. Oh, poor little Rachel, man. She's having yeah. a rough go. Real rough go. You have no idea how rough her go is, Danielle. Oh, no, I'm sad. <laughs> Baby Rachel doesn't deserve this. You're going to hate how this chapter ends. <laughs> Suddenly, the mat starts to lose altitude, plunging towards the river. The console tries to jump free, but guess what? He tied himself to the carpet, so he can't. No. <laughs> Bummer. So tangled up, he tumbles into the water. We cut back to Saul. He was glad to finally be doing something, like sending the console off to get the ship, instead of just waiting there for death. They had brought Mastine back to the Sphinx and made everyone comfortable, including Braun. Saul speculates that the Templar could just be suffering from exposure in a few days without food or water, though he may also be a bit mad, driven so, when he felt the destruction of the Yggdrasil through his telepathic link to it. Nobody's curious how he got us, how he escaped from the... Shrike? He didn't escape. The Shrike took him someplace and left him among the dooms. It wasn't an escape. He was just dumped there like a bag of flour. Did he say that earlier? Yeah, he said that the Shrike took him on the shoulder and then he woke up among the tombs. So he doesn't really know what happened. Absolutely not. <laughs> could be anything, Sam. I mean, that's this whole book in a nutshell, Daniel. Literally anything could have happened. The tombs are still glowing, so rave mode still on, as they watch the flashing lights of space battles above. I was waiting for that. Duray asks Saul who he thinks will win the war, and Saul just says, from what the others say, it seems preordained that the web must suffer from a terrible war. I appreciate your commitment to just keeping on while I'm making noises. If I didn't do that, Danielle, this would be a four-hour podcast if you just making noises. <laughs> I'd listen to Danielle's noise podcast. <laughs> if you want to make yourself a noise podcast, like a sizzle reel, Somebody then you can would do so. listen to that. It could be a hit. <laughs> It's like ASMR, but boring. <laughs> <laughs> You'd basically be like a Foley work audition tape. But terrible, because I'm not good at it. 
you could be the next Michael Winslow, Danielle. Oh, good. That was my dream in life. <laughs> my four well, sounds we'll that I can make. <laughs> <laughs> four sounds, but you're going to use them, dang it. <laughs> you can make a cat noise, I remember. You can make a horse noise. You've made the beatbox noise. Now what? Uh, what's what's the fourth noise? I'm not terrible at chicken noises. Great. Perfect. There's Danielle's resume. Why are they all animals? <laughs> They're not all animals. You also have a, a you know, the, the, the beatbox noise. It's a terrible one, though. Who said any of them were good? <laughs> My cat one's not bad. I can do multiple cat ones. I can do like a normal cat noise and I can do like a, I have a dead animal cat noise. <laughs> oh, and you're going to the full noise. spectrum of cat emotions. <laughs> Hollywood, if you're listening, you need Danielle to voice a cat in heat. Call us. We can hook you up. <laughs> Maybe cats don't dance too. Cats can dance. Cats don't dance too. Cats in heat. That sounds awful. What kind of animated movie is that for children, Danielle? Uh, that has some adult jokes in it, that movie. Yeah, I mean, so does most children movies, but they don't have literal cats in heat. <laughs> well, he's got a girlfriend in that one. You don't know what happens in the second one. I don't think I want to know at this point based on what you're implying. It would just be like an off-site, like an off-film joke. You just hear her yowling and heat in the background. <laughs> he's like, it's that time of the year. Sorry, everyone. I can't let her out. That's awful. <laughs> Anyway, don't ruin the movie, Sam. Continue on. Oh, I'm the one doing the movie. You're the one talking about putting all the cats in that movie in heat. No, I just said that I could do cat noises for it, not specifically the cat in heat noise. <laughs> okay, sure. Anyway, the web must suffer a terrible war. Father Duray then calls to strike the Antichrist, and Saul is all like, you think that's what it is? You think it's the Antichrist? Maybe. And Duray says, they're in trouble if it isn't. Because at one point, he would have been delayed to find the Antichrist because that would have been proof of his beliefs. But now that he died himself, after having crucified himself, he found nothing waiting for him after death. How does he know that? He does, does he remember the nothing? All he has, well, it was nothing. And now that's the whole point. There was nothing but pain and darkness. Like, he doesn't have any memories of death being good. But then, like, well, to your point, how does he know he hasn't forgotten it when he woke back up? Or yeah. B, with the parasite in him, did he actually die? Yeah, I think that's questionable. Like, I wouldn't change my entire religious beliefs on something that was questionable whether or not I even died to begin with. I don't think he's changed it. his entire, like, faith. I just think it has caused him to question things about it. Like, this has been one data point that's been like, oh, that's not a good sign, basically. It's not a helpful sign. I was hoping for something, and I got nothing. You're right. But again, we don't know if he really died, and why would he necessarily remember it if he ended up being put back to life again? He's not, again, he's not saying he renounces his religion entirely. He's just saying that it was not a comforting thing, and having the Antichrist would be a nice thing to know because it would confirm things. Sure. Yes, it definitely would be assuring, I guess. Except that there's an Antichrist. <laughs> well, I'm not saying, like, it's Other a good Other than that. <laughs> Well, you know, the Antichrist might be bad, but at least it would confirm his beliefs for him, which would be reassuring. Anyway, so then Saul again asserts that the time of human sacrificing for a god is over, and while he did follow his dream and come to the place of the demanded sacrifice, he only did to see what would happen when he refused. He's like, I didn't come here to, to follow through the sacrifice, I came here to, like, say no and see how they react, which is pretty funny, I think. <laughs> Saul then wishes they had the technology to fight God on his own plane, and Duray is sympathetic to his anger. <laughs> <laughs> this is going to end poorly. Oh, you think? <laughs> they wake up the next day. It's one day before Rachel's birthday. Saul is surprised to realize that despite raising his daughter essentially twice, he doesn't regret a single day that he's cared for her. 
Oh, what a good dad. I know. He's the best dad. Mastin is still unconscious, getting fluids and nutrients through an IV from a med pack. Braun, though, still brain dead, appears to be otherwise physically healthy. Maybe being fed by the cable in her head? Unclear. She's having a great time. I mean, she's with her Peter Pan floating through the datum plane. She's clapping. Why does clapping have to do with anything? Peter Pan, clapping for fairies, I believe. Oh, okay. You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, I guess. I believe! Do you believe in the Shrike, Danielle? I believe. Maybe. (laughs) (laughs) I want to to take a quick temperature here on how you feel about the Shrike. Good or bad? Evil or not evil? Does he have to be evil or not evil? Could he just be neutral? On the spectrum of do you want the Shrike to succeed versus you don't want the Shrike to succeed whenever its machinations are, where do you stand? Um, I mean, humanity kind of sucks right now. (laughs) I don't know what the future is with the Shrike. But right now, I'm like, maybe 60-40 in favor of the Shrike. <laughs> and that's, oddly enough, that's lower than I thought it would be. I thought you'd be like 80% Shrike at this point. <laughs> well, I don't know enough to really make a, a good judgment call. The that's Shrike's fair. doing lots of terrible things to people who are not that terrible. But, I mean, humanity is kind of at their worst, so. Yeah, no, it's a real conundrum here. <laughs> <laughs> The real, like, lesser of two evils scenario. Exactly. Anyway, later that day, Het Masting suddenly awakes shortly before noon. He sits straight upright, stares past Saul and Duray, glassy-eyed, staring up at the sky, and cries, The tree! Yeah. And Duray and Saul look behind them like, there's nothing there. What are you talking about? And Duray's like, do you think it's hallucinating about the Yggdrasil? And Masting then responds, not the Yggdrasil, the tree, the final tree, the tree of pain. The tree of pain. The tree of pain. The tree of pain. That'd be a great way to we should we need like to a, that. We need piece. a full choir for that. <laughs> right? <laughs> What's that? I mean, what's that classical piece called? You know, ba, da, 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 the one I just made da. the noise for. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What's the name of it? Um, you would know if anyone. I do know, but it's because you. Asked I know, right? I can't remember. I hate when that happens. <laughs> Go look it up quick. <laughs> look just it type up. in dot 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 into Google and see what comes up. <laughs> <laughs> None of this is going to the podcast. It's just for me. <laughs> just curious what it's called. What is it called? That's gonna bug me. All right, well, remind me later. We'll come back to this. I okay, well, like I need I, you to... Need no, to, I was to, listening to that the other day, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Of course you were. I what it was. <laughs> I'm not surprised. Oh, oh, that song isn't from, it Oh Fortuna? Oh Fortuna. Yes, that's it. Okay. I feel better Oof. now. Yes. That we was, got there. <laughs> that was really bugging me. I knew you wouldn't be able to pay attention to this podcast <laughs> until you found out. Thank you. I appreciate that. All right. Back to this. The Tree of Pain. And so Saul's like... Oh, boy, he is feverish. Duray, go get the final med pack and program the Ultra Morph Anti-Fever Agent for it. And then Mastine continues to rant, saying, quote, The Tree of Pain, I was meant to be its voice. The Erg meant to drive it through space and time. The Bishop and the voice of the Great Tree have chosen me. I am the true chosen. I must guide the Tree of Pain during the Time of Atonement. I can't believe I didn't try to connect him with... The Tree of Pain. I know, it's so great! <laughs> that seems so obvious. I know! He flies around trees and there's another tree. I thought it was weird there were two trees. <laughs> <laughs> it's 
the, the book is so insane that even the obvious connections get obscured. It's so good. I'm disappointed in myself for not having thought there was more of a connection there. <laughs> oh, it's so good. The whole plan was for him to be like, well, got to turn this tree into a spaceship. Got to fly the tree of human suffering through space. To be fair, didn't I think it was a spaceship for like a hot minute at the, one of the first episodes <laughs> we talked about the tree of Yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I, maybe uh, my brain went there before the rest of me got there. Oh, uh, it's so good. It's so good. I want to see the head massing, like, toot-toot, piling in the <laughs> ship, like, here comes the tree of suffering. Get on the spikes. <laughs> it's insane. So to be clear, he is not yeah. he is not one of the people that is in the church, the Shrike Church, right? No, he is a Templar, but the mm-hmm. Templars are apparently, like, teamed up with the Shrike cult. Mm-hmm. The Church of Final Atonement, or whatever it's called. And there is some Venn diagram where their beliefs are overlapping, essentially. Okay. And Wild man. they are teamed up. The, the Voice of the Great Tree and the Bishop of the Shrike Church both came together and collaborated to make this plan to get Hetmasting to be the true voice of the Tree of Atonement and to fly it through space. For what reason, I cannot fathom. Like, are they going to take the other plants and just put people on spikes everywhere they go? Yeah, I see. I mean, so. probably. Yeah. <laughs> What else did you do? (laughs) Absolutely insane. I really, I really want to see that. I really want to see him just piloting a little little captain's hat going like, get on board, time to fly the tree of pain. Are we just assuming that, or are they assuming as a religious thing that the people that are on the tree of pain deserve to be on the tree of pain or like you said atonement spikes or whatever well they're called celebrants i guess so i suppose so they must be enjoying themselves according to their faith wild okay religion man I, again, I'm not sure that these religions are any worse than any other religion, but they are definitely... Oh, no, definitely this seems the- like future Catholicism or something. Like, it's, like, kind yeah, of insane. Yeah, already, we already have future Catholicism. <laughs> yeah, but I know, but this doesn't feel that far departed from Catholicism. Danielle, I'm going to tell you right now, as a little, like, treat for the one of the few things I do remember from the next set, set of books, boy, do we get a real future Catholicism Wonderful. in those books. Yeah, I just, they feel akin. They feel like a natural part of each other or split from each other or whatever. I mean, there is the idea of, like, suffering as and atonement, atonement and like and, like, yeah. and some, like, versions of Catholicism do have, like, pain involved in them. Yeah, self-flagellation, all exactly. that kind of stuff. So. so. Yeah, I don't feel know. like it's just like it's just like if if there were magic beings, Catholicism would have gone awry <laughs> <laughs> to this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. If there was a shrike in a tree of pain, like yeah, people deserve that. We're all evil. Humanity deserves that. I feel like there'd been a, like a, a section of, of Catholics that would have gone to this, been called to. Probably, I mean. Probably a section of a lot of different people who've gone to this. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> to be fair. carry on. Yeah. Anyways, this is, I, think, I think that's just the funniest image of him like, yeah, I can take my one erg and turn that metal tree that's an impossibly large tree into a spaceship. How does the Love erg it. feel about this? <laughs> uh, apparently it's on board because it's mentally linked to Hetmastian at this point. Crazy. So during his rant, he slowly loses energy and then sort of falls back unconscious as they attach the final med pack to him. Saul and Dwayne are all like, well, it looks like the Templars and the Shrike cult have been in cahoots, but what is he talking about? <laughs> what does that all mean? And then Saul's like, we'll have to ask him in the afterlife because he's dead. Ooh. Womp womp. Massing's dead. <laughs> he's gone. <laughs> the end. Did the they end br- what did they bring him back for? <laughs> to, to, for? To tell you about his plan to fly the ship through the space. Yeah, but if he doesn't the, the get to fly space. the ship, what does it matter? Well, I don't know. He was just, that's the plan. Didn't work out. That was the plan. <laughs> Stupid. How is the console still alive and this guy's dead? 
<laughs> I love how last episode we thought, who do you think's going to die next? Like, definitely the console or Kassad. And like, nope, Headmaster, he's gone. I said they didn't have, like, a plot yet, so it'd be weird to kill him first. Well, you know, you go, Dan Simmons. <laughs> Define expectations. <laughs> I just don't understand what, I'm sure it ties in somehow later, but I just don't understand the point. I mean, it may, maybe it does, and you know, I don't know, but he was here to tell them about like the whole plan to fly the ship through space, and they're like, well, that's cool, and then he dies. Great. <laughs> Perfect. It just feels pointless. It may not be. Uh, <laughs> it's, I kind of enjoy this book having what's like seemingly pointless stuff, like the Lepidopterist information and everything, because... That's like world-building world stuff. That's, that's this is like a building. main plot line. <laughs> But, like, it's fun to see that, like, oh, we as humanity, if this situation was really happening, I'm sure we'd have all these different factions making these plans. Like, oh, what do we have to do when the time tombs up? We have to fly the ship through space. That's our belief. And they can make that belief and they're going to set that to happen. But, like, oh, sorry, you're just wrong. That's not actually what the plan is. Like, your your beliefs are wrong. Sorry. Yeah, what I think is interesting because, I mean, if, if this may be relevant later on. Who knows? If it's not, that's an interesting thing to do is to introduce a character, have a buildup to the character. The character disappears. The character comes back. He states, you know, he has a few pages where he gets to state his plan and then he dies. And if there's nothing that actually happens with any of that information or plot line... Yeah. Then, I mean, that's real life. I would agree that that's like something that would happen in real life. Yeah. It is not how books normally work. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is why this book is so weird. And also like, it's so complicated. Like there are so many machinations and you're like, oh, all of these are going to come together in some grand scheme, right? But like there's a part of me that, that wants none of it to happen because it's the idea that, oh, humanity has its little plans. Humanity has its little machinations and beliefs, but... Honestly, the universe does not care about humanity, and we're just making these plans. They don't matter at all. Like, if that's, like, the ultimate message, that's great. Also, why would the Shrike kidnap the guy who was supposed to drive his Tree of Pain around and then leave him? Because maybe, like, the Shrike does not care about the plan for the Tree of Pain. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. That's not my plan. Got it. I mean, it could be wrong. I don't remember if he comes back or not, I'll be very honest, but like if all their plans, if Mina's plans, if the console's plans, with the, the ouster's plans, if all of their plans are just like, oh yeah, guys, sorry, none of your plans actually matter, you're all wrong, and humanity's just deluded if it thinks it can predict what's going to happen, that's, that's kind of great. I mean, I said in the first book that I assumed humanity was just going to be wiped out by the end of the series. I mean, even if it's not wiped out, like the idea that they have any control over their destiny being eliminated, like, no, you have no control. Just accept that. Like, if that's, if nihilism is the point of the book, amazing. <laughs> might be. It might be. So that's why I'm like, I, you know, it's hard to know at this point what it is, but I think it's a really fun idea to have, like, you know, to take the classic idea of chosen ones and big plans and complicated political maneuvering. And, and then it's like, no, none of that actually matter you can do all that but it doesn't matter that's a fun twist on the like sci-fi epic i would say it's 50 50 chance that that might be how the book ends up <laughs> danielle i really at this point it is a coin flip i have no idea <laughs> so bastine dies womp womp they bury him in a shallow grave dug with cassad's latrine shovel down in the valley no sad death <laughs> <laughs> very ignoble i love it they're so casual he's said danielle they're, he's very casual with how he just wipes out people yeah everybody who's died or been whatever put onto the tree of pain etc lately has just been very casually done unceremoniously just go oh they're dead now sorry <laughs> which again very true to life it happens <laughs> then they return to wait for the console to come back with the ship deray saying by this time tomorrow he 
He should be back here. We'll use the laser cutters to free Braun, then set her up in the ship surgery. Perhaps Rachel's reverse aging can be arrested in cryogenic storage, despite what the doctor said. And Saul says, yes. Then Duray asks, do you really believe that will happen? And Saul just goes, no. He's like, definitely not going to the ship. We're all going to die. <laughs> yeah, he's like, no, I don't believe it's going to happen. Like, it's very optimistic of you, but no, I don't think it's going to happen. <laughs> so good. I would hope that he's come to terms a long time ago that his daughter may very well not make it. Oh, he is, I think, past coming to terms with it. I think he is just sort of like now morbidly curious about what's going to happen. Right. So as day turns to dusk, the console hasn't returned. Duray muses that if he didn't view suicide as a sin, he might kill himself to let young Hoyt live again. And Saul was like, do you really think Hoyt would want that? Like, he seemed to really not like his life any- <laughs> yeah, at all. He was not into it. He's probably he pleased. Into it. He's like, oh, thank God I get a break. <laughs> Yeah, so maybe don't do that even if it wasn't a sin. It's not very helpful to him. He wouldn't see that as a gift. And then Duray's like, you know what? I think I'm going to go take a walk. So I'll I'll be back later. Really? (laughs) Which, you know, is how he dies probably. (laughs) (laughs) Splitting up always seems to work out well in this book. I wouldn't feel bad if Duray died. I feel like Duray and Hoyt just need to like be really dead. Like truly, truly dead. I think the irony is the two people who want to die are the two people who can't die. (laughs) Yeah, sad. (laughs) Which is... Again, very funny <laughs> in a tragic way. Right, the line between tragedy and comedy in this book is very thin. So as DeRay walks down the valley past the tombs, DeRay can feel the damage the cruciform parasite has done to his mind. It's like suffering a stroke. His memory is weaker, and thoughts and reasoning that were once easy for him to do now take tremendous effort or are simply beyond his capabilities now. Oh, poor Dray. He's also emotionally volatile, having to go off and weep randomly for seemingly no reason. He's been through a lot in his zillions of years. Not zillions, he's been like... Uh, a century or so, maybe? At most? I think less than that. A lot of years, Sam. It's a lot of years <laughs> of torture. Point is, having been resurrected and killed, you know, dozens, hundreds of times while being tied to that tree, the parasite has greatly degraded his mental faculties. Right. And as he passes the cave tombs, he notices there's light coming out of the third one. Duray knows he should probably just ignore it and go back to Saul, but he then thinks, the Shrike came to each of the others separately. Why should I refuse the summons? Is he going to the party? Yeah, so he hears from the cave tomb the distinct beat of the Shrike and the plaintive wails of kittens. (laughs) (laughs) Danielle's fully real is complete. Uh, No, but no, suddenly weeping again, he enters the tomb, and that's all. (laughs) We cut to Saul, suddenly waking up, alone in the Sphinx. In the failing light, he does a brief search of the valley for Duray, finding nothing, even in the cave tombs. When he returns to the Sphinx, he finds Braun has vanished. Uh Uh-oh, Braun. She's gone. Did she get pulled away? She, like, they... He just... (laughs) Shrek just, like, like, pulled his tube back, and she, like, dragged along the cave. I like to imagine it was the other way around, where, like... He pulled on her ankles, like when you uh, lift up a blind, and like it would click, and then you like, flipped her up and pulled her back. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about, right? Yeah. <laughs> Excellent. Like, like a blind. It's great. <laughs> no, but she's gone. The blanket they had wrapped her in, empty. So after searching the Sphinx and finding no sign of her or the cable, he goes back outside with Rachel and sits on a rock. It's now her birthday, her first and her last. Aw, nickel Rachel. Yeah, poor Rachel. He thinks that in less than a day, he'll be truly alone. And while he can't see it, there has to be a pattern to all of these events. Again, I really hope there's not, because that'd be funny as heck. <laughs> Do you think he, like, assuming Rachel, whatever, turns into a fetus or dies or whatever she does, does 
like in some ways you'd kind of be slightly relieved Right. I mean, you'd be sad right, that you, you weren't able. Over. Yeah, like you'd be sad that you weren't able to accomplish whatever goal you'd set out to try and save her. But at least she'd like it'd be kind of nice for her and for you. <laughs> right. I mean, like your this burden would be lifted. Like not to say that she's a burden to him, but the burden of her suffering. Yeah. Basically. And having to take yeah. care of her or just be like been such a commitment for him over the years. So you think Rachel's going to die this chapter, Danielle? Uh, I mean, she might be sacrificed or something or ascend or uh, <laughs> turn into a baby Keats or he it's might die. <laughs> he basically covered everything that could possibly happen. So it's, we'll find out what does. It's possible she'll turn into a baby Keats and then Saul gets stabbed. <laughs> <laughs> You've covered most of any possible answer. So one of them might be right. So he then goes back into the Sphinx and makes a nest of blankets to sleep in. Once again, Saul finds himself in the dream he knows so well, walking through a vast structure and outside the sound of a massive conflagration, entire worlds burning. He finds what he knew he would, an altar with Rachel on it, the twin red orbs of the Shrike's eyes floating above everything. The voice came, demanding the sacrifice, but Saul just yells back that there will be no more offerings and to either help as a friend or to go away. <laughs> but unlike before, this time the dream doesn't end. Oh no. The altar is suddenly empty except for a bone knife. Then a voice implores Saul, telling him, The future of humankind depends upon your choice. Can you offer Rachel out of love, if not obedience? And Saul is about to respond with the obvious, uh, no. <laughs> when he feels a touch on his hand and the voice says, Say yes, daddy. Now they're just playing dirty. <laughs> it's eight-year-old Rachel <laughs> holding his hand, looking at him imploringly. That's mean. Saul knows this isn't just like a dream or a figment. This is the actual Rachel. Like This is her speaking to him through his dream. Like eight-year-old Rachel knows what the heck is going on. <laughs> it's not like actual eight-year-old Rachel. It's like his daughter. Just this is a representation of her. Right. I got it. Now Saul is faced with a dilemma. Quote, he knew obedience could no longer be paramount in relations between humanity and a deity, but when the child chosen as sacrifice asked for obedience to that god's whim, what's he going to do? What's his options now? <laughs> Rock in a hard place. He kneels down in front of Rachel, crying, and they hug, and she whispers to him, Please, Daddy, we have to say yes. He then rises and takes her hand firmly in his and walks down towards the altar below. Do he has to sacrifice her as an eight-year-old and not as a little one-day-old baby that can't talk back to him? <laughs> Give him sad <laughs> that would eyes. Be horrific. <laughs> Saul wakes suddenly. It's late morning. Rachel is now just ten hours old. He oh. remembered the dream and Rachel's entreaty, but still hopeful that the console will return, as the idea of giving her to the Shrike still fills him with horror because, yeah, no kidding. Yeah. What's the strike up to? Suspicious. What is the strike up to, Danielle? <laughs> Do you think he kills humans so that he can become human? It no. can become human. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think the, I think it's like humanity sucks. I don't want any part of that. <laughs> We do know he doesn't want to fly his ship through space with an Erg and Hetmastin, which is a pity because that's all like a great party. <laughs> do you think the tree turns them into strikes? <laughs> I think the problem is. The Shrike has a residency at the Time Tomb, so he can't take his DJing on the, on the road. It is a real dilemma. The world <laughs> yeah, deserves right? more DJ Shrike. Yeah, so he can't like go around touring to all the different plants. He's like, I got a residency here. I got a plan. <laughs> I can't leave. I'm obligated. I'm under contract. So I want to disappoint all the other everyone strikes here. Come from Danielle. Boy, do I not know the answer to that question. <laughs> Isn't Monita Moneta? <laughs> no. Are you sure? She kind of half turns into a Shrike later. We learn stuff about, about Monia Moneta later that is amazing, Danielle. Yay. So anyway, by noon, the console has still not returned. 
Later, after a brief doze, he sees a ship racing across the sky, like distantly high up in the sky. Saul is momentarily jubilant. The console, he did it, he's back. Then there are three heavy thuds that strike the valley. The first two are the sonic booms of the ship. The third is it being blown up. Oh no, did the console just die? A few minutes later, two more ships appear. One of them also explodes and the other drops out of sight beyond the mountains of the bridal range. Saul is like, uh, uh, maybe that wasn't the console. <laughs> Thinking it could be the ouster invasion and that the console could still be on his way. Oh yeah, he's not. He's definitely not. <laughs> By dusk, 30 minutes before Rachel was born, the console has not appeared. Saul looks up and sees the trails of missiles and dropships heading down towards the surface of Hyperion. The invasion has definitely begun. Oh, poor Rachel. Not gonna make it. She's gonna turn into a baby Keith. She's gonna turn into something, Danielle. <laughs> baby Shrike. The tombs are now glowing more brightly than ever. Quote, with the horrid light of neon gases excited by electrons. So, you know, there's a fun description. <laughs> Full rave mode activated. <laughs> Get your tickets ready, because the opener is going off the stage, and our main act is here. It's the strike! Yay! DJ strike. Do you believe in love like love? <laughs> That's the strike's opening song. Do you believe in life after love? Yeah. <laughs> what a choice, Danielle. What a choice. That would be the last song I would choose for the strike to sing. That's a good EDM hit. <laughs> Is it a good EDM hit, Danielle? It is when DJ Shrike does it. <laughs> okay. He makes it his own. I'm sure he would do great things with Life After Love, but I'm also not sure it's really on brand for the Shrike. It's perfectly on brand. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, yeah. How so? <laughs> um, I don't know. I don't know the Shrike's best life. I feel like he has a, a really deep uh, history. Maybe somebody hurt him, and that's why he becomes <laughs> So this is all just him like, I got a bad breakup, and so to deal with it, I'm traveling back in time so I can avoid her. Yes. <laughs> and I'm going to make humanity be sacrificed on my tree so they can all feel the same pain of heartbreak that I feel. <laughs> yes, exactly that. Wouldn't he look good as Cher? <laughs> <laughs> okay, yes. What? Like, just the Cher costumes, I really feel like it would add to his allure. You want to see a, a, a three-meter Shrike with four <laughs> arms dressed as Cher. Yes. How do you I mean, not want to see that? I, I was going to say, now that you say that, Danielle, that's the, that's the only thing I want to see. <laughs> that's why the opening with that song is perfect, Sam. <laughs> okay, great. Well, <laughs> why don't you do me a favor, Danielle, and draw me a picture of DJ Cher Shrike. <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I want to see that. <laughs> so what's happening? Well, unfortunately, no, that song is not what blasts out of the time tombs. I, you don't know that. I mean, they could be, but I don't think so. <laughs> no proof to the contrary. It is now three minutes until Rachel's birth. Saul climbs the stairs to the entrance of the Sphinx, kneeling on the top step. The Sphinx glows intensely, casting his shadow far into the valley behind him, pulsing blue, violet, and then white. Does he have Rachel with him? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. I assumed if she's only three minutes old, I was just making sure. On the plateau above the valley, the Tree of Thorns shimmers into existence, but kind of like appears shimmery and indistinct. Out of the glowing door of the Sphinx, the Shrike emerges. Sol clings to Rachel as the Shrike looks side to side, as if, quote, surveying his domain. He then approaches Saul and extends its forearms, bladed palms up, waiting. Saul remembers his dream, Rachel imploring him to say yes, and thinks to himself, quote, that in the end... When all else is dust, loyalty to those we love is all we can carry with us to the grave. Faith, true faith, 
was trusting in that love. Saul lifts the newborn and dying Rachel and hands her to the Shrike. The Shrike takes her, steps backwards into the glowing door and vanishes. Behind the Sphinx, the Tree of Thorns stops shimmering and becomes more solid, as if finally snapping into our own timeline. Explosions ring out as Saul is slammed to his knees. The time tombs are opening. Uh-oh. Bum, bum, bum. The end of part two. Do you think that the Shrike is, like, taking away the things that everybody really wants? Like, he's taken away Martin's Cantos. He's taken yeah. away Baby Rachel. He's taken away... What was the other the one? Ship, the, the, the ship, ship tree. The, yeah, from the ship tree. He, he's taken away, I don't know... The Paul cons- Ray's death. Yeah, Paul Ray's death. The console's uh, ship uh, piano. <laughs> The console wants more than anything is like revenge on the universe. And he's taken away his ability to do that, I guess, because his betrayal hasn't really betrayed anyone. He's like, this is all going to plan. And I don't understand any of Bronn's motivations, but I'm sure he's taking away something from her. Well, we don't know yet. Maybe Bronn will lose. Like, Bronn's motivations are all about, like, solving the mystery of her father's death, basically. Mm-hmm. Or also, of course, being with Johnny. So maybe... Right now what... she's getting a chance to be with him again, though. Yeah, but maybe that, like, the only decision you can take it away later. It's quite possible. <laughs> or, like, when she finds the answer to her father's death, they're like, oh, this is definitely unsatisfying as a mystery. So. I mean, he's definitely taken the important things away from all of these characters. Maybe that's like the real message here, Danielle, is that... <laughs> you can't have nice things. <laughs> well, that, that, you know, maybe this is more like a, a, a Zen idea of you have to let go of attachment. Sure. <laughs> to be <laughs> the greater scope of things. To die, apparently. The, to be made to evolve to its greatest potential. It has to let go of attachment to the material world or something. I don't know. <laughs> I wouldn't call Rachel the material world. <laughs> She's physical. She counts. <laughs> So there you go. That's the end of part two. That's a very dramatic part two. Good job. Yeah. Part three is coming. It's going to be wild. <laughs> oh, did you you did not see that coming, I bet, with Pat Mastine for sure. Yeah. I just, I'm confused. <laughs> Mostly I'm just confused. I think that's the, where you're supposed to be at this point in the book. We've like, we're approaching the, the climax now where everything's going to like come to a head. So I do not trust that the third part of the book is going to resolve anything I have questions about. <laughs> just so you know. <laughs> Don't believe it. <laughs> it's all a lie. It might not resolve anything that you have questions about, but it's going to answer the questions it wants to answer, which might be not the questions you want to have answered. That's certainly true. Gonna... That was a sentence that made sense in my head. I, it made sense to me. <laughs> Great. Perfect. <laughs> oh, I'm so excited for the end of this book, Danielle. It's crazy. Things are real popping off, aren't they? They are. How many more episodes do you think we have? <sighs> Hopefully two. So we've done we've done two per part so far. So I'm hoping I get the last one done in two parts, but maybe three if it turns out to be the, the longest part of the book. We'll find out. So we'll find out. You'll find out with us, listeners. Yeah, I'm certainly going to find out because I'm excited to read the rest of this. And poor Rachel, sacrificed to the Shrike. For good or evil, who knows? Or neutral. I mean, Might just be nothing. No reason. <laughs> for funsies. Before it happened, how were you on whether or not Saul was actually going to follow through with the sacrifice or not? Um, I felt like it was probably going to end with sacrifice. I wasn't yeah. sure how it would come about, but I figured it probably would. Not just because the cover of the book suggests that it might, but because, <laughs> yeah. like, why would you have a dream about this for so long and not have it relate to anything in the end? Though, you know, the way this book's going, who knows? <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, Danielle, you're trying to apply logic to this story where it does not work. Just a little bit here and there. <laughs> I think this book has, a, like, like Saul was saying, like, there's a pattern. Like, I think there's a logic to this book. It's just not a logic that we are familiar with. <laughs> That just seems so, like, it was so 
common, that theme, that yeah. it would have been weird to not do absolutely anything with that. Even if it was that he didn't actually give the kid up, but that meant yeah. something. Like, that would have, like, something. It had to have meant something. Like he said, his plan was to come here to refuse and see what happens. So it was like 50-50 whether he was going to follow through or not. Right. And then, you know, child dream Rachel's like, yeah, do it, Dad. Go for it. And he's like, that's definitely real Rachel. Not dream Rachel. Not a figment of my imagination or something put in by the strike or <laughs> some other Look, deity. He knows, Danielle. Like everyone else in this book, when he knows, he knows. He like knows. somehow they just know when things are real or not. That would be convenient, wouldn't it? I, oh, gosh. So convenient. <laughs> Well, I hope you're as excited as I am for the next part, Danielle. Absolutely, Sam. So excited. I hope you can remember anything that happens to this part when we talk about it in two weeks. I'm sure with prompting, I'll do fine. You will. (laughs) (laughs) It's not my fault I don't think about this for two weeks. (laughs) I'm not reading it. What do I care? (laughs) (laughs) That's totally fair. All right. Well... If you want to help us create a new act for DJ Shrike called The Share Files, you can do so by sending us some extra cash at our Patreon at patreon.com slash bookretorts. You can also make a boots and pants tradition um, with cats uh, if you want to like show us what a little bit of DJ Shrike's music is like. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to hear it. If you want to go back through all of our episodes and just gather all of Danielle's sound effects together as a sizzle reel for her Foley work, that would be hilarious. I'm not going to do that. That's way too much work, but you can do it. Uh, I'm sure we have a listener out there somewhere that might be uh, that? enthusiastic. <laughs> Well, if you do do that, you can send it to us at bookretorts.com. You can also tweet, Instagram, or Facebook us at bookretorts. All right. Well, until next time, don't sacrifice your children to space monsters. (laughs) Yeah, always a good rule to follow, I guess. I I don't know what the turnout is for this. I mean, maybe it's a bad rule to follow. (laughs) We'll find out. All right. Well, until then, bye. Take care, everybody. Also, I think DJ Shrike is probably our best creation yet. <laughs> He's a good one. <laughs> Definitely going to carry through it all. The- I can't believe it's carried through this song to begin with. <laughs> I like that we throw back to things that were like 80 episodes ago. <laughs> like what? I don't know. Sometimes like the moon thing. I mean, that was what, oh, 100 yeah, yeah. plus episodes ago. We're like, let's bring that up every third episode. <laughs> Anytime we have anything space related, we're like, drive the moon into space. (laughs) (laughs) Because it is an absolutely bonkers idea that sticks with you. You cannot shake that notion. (laughs)